Amen. Well, thanks for coming out tonight. Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. A year ago, we were in Exodus, and we spent a long time in Exodus. It was really fun. And what I saw, what really spoke to me as we were studying Exodus, is it told us so much about God and his character and his plan for people, but it spent a considerable amount of time explaining to us God's will for his people. The people that he just redeemed, pulled out of Egypt, it then sent chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of now these people that have been pulled out, who were they supposed to be? They're supposed to become a community that's absolutely other and totally different than any other nation or any other community around it. It's a complete contrast community. God wanted his people to stand out in the world from how they physically looked to how many festivals they had. Like that's one of my favorite parts about studying Exodus is how adamant God was that his people be partiers. Like the celebratory people, the joyful people, the people that have festival after festival all through the year like a drumbeat where you'll get together, laugh with your family, break bread, celebrate, sing songs, dance. That's what God wants for his people. So much so that he mandates it and says, you will party. Like that's awesome. God, he wanted his people to be so absolutely different than all the cultures around it. When God pulled his people out of Egypt, he gave them laws socially that would make them different from any other nation. He elevated the status and gave rights to slaves. He had elevated the status of women. Our God even went so far as to mandate how far a farmer can till his land because he wanted the border of a farmer's land to be available whenever there was a wanderer coming through town to be able to freely eat. He wanted a group of people that just absolutely stood apart from the rest of the world. And as you go through, as we went through Exodus, what we saw was so much about God's character and so much good theology and God revealing himself and, and what that means for us, but also so much of it was spent on his people and who they're supposed to be, who he want, what he wanted for them. And just like that, in 1 Timothy, you have the first half is spent on theology and doctrine, and this last portion of it is written about what are the kind of people that God wants us to be? How does God want us to treat each other? And so with the Israelites, God didn't pull them out and say, okay, now your duty is to know me, know about me, and, and um, just just have a personal relationship with me. It was absolutely they had to have that, but it was tied to being his people. And he had, this is how you'll know you're my people. In that same way, some people will teach you that all you need is just a personal relationship with Jesus, which you do need a personal relationship with Jesus. You need to talk to him in prayer every day. You need to listen to Jesus by reading scripture. You need to seek him hourly, all the time walking with Jesus, being with Jesus, but you also need to be connected with Jesus's people. And there's a way that we function with each other that Jesus wants us to. Um, Chad sent an email to all the staff this morning that had this brilliant quote in it. It just said this, unchurched people aren't looking for an echo of the culture. They're looking for an alternative to it. You know that? Unchurched people, you and me, we don't come to church because we want more of what's out there. Because I can get that on my phone. I can get a better version of 
any sort of entertainment on my phone than my parents could have dreamed of when they were my age. I'm not coming here for more of that. You and I are coming together because we want an alternative to what all of culture is trying to sell you of this is what life is about, this is what you need to be fulfilled, because we know that's not true. We've got the source of all life. We praise him, his name is Jesus. And so you need relationships in the church. It says all the way back in Genesis that it's not good for us to be alone. And the only reason that we're lonely and the only reason that we're selfish and the only reason that we're separated, the Bible tells us, is because of sin. Our sin separates us from God and it separates us from each other. And so Jesus came, he lived without sin, Jesus died for sin, Jesus rose to conquer sin, and Jesus alone cleanses and takes away and forgives and heals sin so that we could be friends with God and friends with each other. And out of that, that's how we get the church. The church is the effect of Jesus conquering sin so that we can be reconnected. And now that we are the church, Jesus's church, as a bunch of sinners, there's gonna be times when there's some friction and there's gonna be some clashing because we're sinners. And there's gonna be arguing, but that's okay because that's what a family does, right? And that's the metaphor the Bible uses over and over and over again is God is the father and you and I are adopted family members, adopted sons and daughters of the king because of Jesus. And so this chapter keeps that relationship, that idea of now, okay, we're in a family and here's how that family works. It's gonna deal with inner relationships within the church. It's got a lot for you and me today in it. So let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Do not rebuke an older man. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but encourage him as you would a father, young men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So first thing Paul does is he says, Timothy, you're a young guy. You're coming into this church. There's a lot of problems. And you've been with me. Timothy has gone to a bunch of churches with Paul. They've set up good systems. They put together good structure. They, they know how to do church. And so Timothy is going into this church and Paul warns him, hey, there's gonna be guys that have also been doing church for a long time. And you know what's really fun for every older generation is when the young guys come in and they're like, hey, I know what we're doing. We're turning the music up. Isn't that fun? I've seen that happen here like every three years and then there's a riot and then it settles down and three years more youth come in and it's back up and that's the cycle we go through. No, the, but young guys, you know, they have a lot of um, zeal. They're very excited and they, they know they're right. I mean, I knew so much when I was 18 and I've gotten stupider every year because I find out there's more and more I don't know. I had no idea when I was 18 all the things I didn't know about. But as I'm getting older, I'm like, oh my gosh. I really wish I had, had shut my mouth more. You know what I mean? So here's what Paul is saying to Timothy. When you're going into this church, recognize that the people, the men there who are older than you, they've got a lot of wisdom. They have a whole lot of experience. They have a whole lot of things that you can learn from them. Proverbs even says about older men, it says it specifically just about white gray hair. It says, silver hair is a crown of glory. You know what that's saying? It means they deserve to be respected, that they deserve to be recognized, that, that, <laughs> that they know a lot, they have wisdom, they have experience, they've been through some stuff. 
And here's what's really important for the young man to do in that it, when, when there are things, hey, I've, I've got opinions, I've got things I've got to say, you earn your opinion. You patiently persist and get to know the people around and invest in life and get the older people to know you. And in that same way, the old people need to remember that they were the young guy once and have patience with the young guy. And we don't want the young guys in our church to stay boys forever. We want them to be raised up to godly manhood. And the only way that that happens is with good fathers around who will say, hey, I wanna take you and bring you into that place. I mean, there's so many kids in our kids' wing, there's so many middle schoolers, high schoolers here who do not have godly fathers in their life. But lucky for them, they're connected to a church full of godly fathers, amen? People that would love to get together with them and say, hey, God's got such bigger plans for you. God, God knows you, God, God, whatever you're doing right there, God's got a better plan for you. That's what you and I are called to be. That's what the older men of this church are called to be. They're called to be people who will raise up the young men. And the young men are called to persist patiently until they have a voice, an opinion that is earned. I mean, don't we all want that for our sons to grow up and become people that the older generation would go, I wanna hear what he has to say. That happens through being patient. That happens through not being this loud, rebuking young guy, but being someone who goes up to older men like fathers and say encouraging words. And hey, will you walk with me? Will you help me understand this? Will you lead me through this? And then it talks about men of the same age that you are. It says to look at them like brothers. And this is not... Um, like the way that I was with my brothers, I was recognizing as I was studying. Because for me, my brotherhood was a whole lot more like Judas and less like Jesus. You know what I mean? I really wasn't Jesus to my brother. And I know that because just the last week, I'm, I'm walking with one of my coworkers here and my phone just gets three texts like, <laughs> I haven't talked to my brother all week. He lives in Eugene. I pick up my cell phone and they're all from him. And here's what those texts said. Text one said, this, uh, remember when I got grounded and mom took my iPod away, but I found it and was listening to it on the way to school. Then text two says this, and you snitched on me because you're a rat. <laughs> text three said, I just remembered and I am mad at you today. <laughs> brothers can treat brothers pretty terribly. That's not what Paul is advocating for here. Paul is saying, hey, be like a brother who wants the best for your brother. He's not some stranger who comes into the building to learn about God. He's your brother. You need to walk with him through challenges and trials. And there's things going on at home. And you need to approach him as a brother and walk through parenting and being a good husband and being a good co-worker and being a good employer or employee with the people that God has brought into your family, just like you would with your brother. Then he goes on to talk about mothers. How do you show your mom that you love her? Well, I think opening a door for her is a good, good way, saving a seat for her. When you get together for a meal, your mom gets to eat first. You know, you do little things to show your mom that you care for her, that you appreciate her, that you love her, that she's valued. All that sort of stuff we need to be doing for the older women of our church. They show us that they care, us and care about us and love us because of the way that they invest in our kids in the kids' wing. Sign up today. Yeah. Older women, I need you. You're my people. 
You know, but we're supposed to look at the older women of our church and give them reverence and honor and treat them like we would our mom. It's really, really important. And I know that not all of us have gotten to have the experience that I've had. Where I was raised in a godly family, my mom and dad are still married. Church was very important to them. I still talk to all my siblings. That's not the case for everybody. But here's what's so awesome. The Bible tells us that right here, that if you have, you don't have that dad that you can go to to ask how to do stuff or get encouragement from or, hey, help me walk through this stage in life. That's what the men, the older men of this church are here for. And I can guarantee there's not one older man here that wouldn't just love a younger guy going, hey, will you help me with some stuff? I'm, I need some help. If you don't have a mom to love you, to encourage you, to pray for you, oh my gosh, women, how, how much would you love just a younger guy coming up or younger woman saying, hey, will you pray for me this week? Will you just keep me in your thoughts? Would you do that? Dude, totally. You'd absolutely do that. That's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be totally counter-cultural to everything else that's going on in the world that's so focused on individualism and being yourself and being true to yourself. We're supposed to be, hey, we care for each other and we pray about each other and we encourage one another to love and good works. We're gonna esteem others as greater than ourselves. That's who we're supposed to be. That's who we've been called to be. And the last thing is really interesting because it says, um, he adds a tagline to it. He says, Younger women as sisters in all purity. He had that, adds that tagline, in all purity. And it's, it's really interesting because that, that, that phrase, in all purity, in the Greek doesn't come out just right. It, it, it's literally translated loaded gun. <laughs> like the way that we're supposed, the young men are supposed to deal with and interact with young women in the church as they would with their sister. Just honestly, it's not flirtatious. There's, we don't play banjo music here. You know, it's you, you treat young women with the same respect and dignity that you would your own sister. And if the Lord leads to um, it becoming more than great, but I do this thing in the kid's hallway all of the time because that's my domain. I rule there. When, the, when I see a middle school or a high school boyfriend and girlfriend walking, holding hands or his arm over her, I go in and I go, whoop, and I just separate them. I just get right in the middle right there. And I know it's irritating for some of those boys. That's what I do. We don't do that here. That's in the hallway. It's either you put a ring on it or you keep your hands off it. And that's my opinion. All right, that's your sister. Amen, right? Listen, if we all got on board, this is how it would be. We get to control the culture here. We just go, hey, we don't do that here. I know that, that that's how it works. I see it in the kids' wing all of the time. We set boundaries with kids and we say, hey, we don't do that here. And the kids go, okay, guess that's, that's how we function here. We're supposed to be countercultural in that this is supposed to be a family. That's how we're supposed to look at each other, encourage each other, walk with each other. That's who we're called to be as God's people. We know him, yes, we follow Jesus, yes, but we also interact with each other as a family, as he's asked us to. So verse three, there's no way we're getting through this. He goes to uh, his next kind of topic is that there seems to be a particular problem going on at this church. He's going to address it. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. 
So what there seems to be is a group of people coming together to get um, support from the church. They're claiming to be widows. And so Paul is trying to give Timothy a definition, a bar to say, these are the people who are truly in need, who you should truly help and, and support and try, try to encourage those who aren't to do something else. This happens all of the time. So way long ago when Paul was alive, there was no 401ks. There's no retirement plan. There was, if the breadwinner for your house, your spouse, your husband died, and you didn't have children or grandchildren to support you, you're in a dangerous spot. And so the church became known as this hyper generous community that wanted to see people do well and flourish and, and will help you any way we can. And that always leads to people wanting to take it. The people who will take advantage will flock to those areas. We, that happened here a few months ago. So if you don't know, the guy currently in the first through fifth grade classroom, his name is Brayden. Brayden, when he's not here, wears a cowboy hat and cowboy boots, and he wears a huge belt buckle that he's earned. And he'll let you know he's earned it. His brother is the youngest NFR, which is national, it should be rodeo, I don't know, but he's, in, he's the youngest pro bull rider in America. Like, it's crazy. He'll tell, he was telling us stories about, yeah, when I was you know, 14, I was riding this bull. I got knocked off. He broke both my legs. And my dad said, crawl out. And my brother and I are looking at him going, dang, don't mess with Brayden. Like, dude's tough. So Brayden is next door, looking like he works with kids, not like he works with Buffalo. And this guy comes in and he's wearing a cowboy hat and a buckle and cowboy boots. And Rachel just happened to walk by him and said, hey, there's a guy here, he's, he's asking for help. Would you mind meeting with him and see what his need is? And he goes, yeah, sure. So he goes and he meets with them and he sees all his stuff. He goes, oh, cool, cool buckle. And he goes, yeah, man, I earned it. And he goes, oh, where at? And he goes, oh, I was in the NFR. And Brain goes, really, what year? Because if you know someone who's really passionate about a football team, they know everyone who's on the team, right? Minimally, they know the quarterback. If you know someone who's super into a team, they know every quarterback that's ever been since the team started, right? Braden's that kind of guy. So he goes, oh yeah, I won an NFR three years ago. And he goes, really, what, what, was the, what, what was the thing that you did? He told me, he goes, no way, because that's what his brother raced in. He was there. Braden was physically there at this rodeo that he apparently won, right? And so he goes, well, where are you headed? He said, oh, I'm going out to Wyoming. We're raising these uh, bulls out there and we, we raise them from a young age and we slaughter them. And he goes, the, the feedlots and the slaughterhouses two different places, but okay, maybe he's confused. He goes, what kind of cows? And he goes, oh, those big woolly ones. And he goes, and Brady's just thinking, we don't do that in America. Like, well, they, they do raise those to eat, but we don't do that here. He's just going lie after lie after lie. And you know what? If he's telling me, dude, he's wearing the right outfit, I would have believed him. You know, he just needs some gas money. And Braden's sitting there going, not one thing that you said made any sense. It was totally the Holy Spirit that Braden was there and this dude came in. Because Braden's just like, no. We're not doing that. <laughs> there are people who always seek to take advantage of the generosity of the church. And so Paul is trying to say here, here's what we're gonna do to differentiate that. And so first off, if they have kids or grandkids, it's pleasing in the sight of God that they would start to take care of their relative, of their grandma or their mom. That's what makes God happy. And this has always been the case with the Lord. Like we were talking about Exodus earlier. The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. And you know how important that is to God? 
He says, honor your father and mother so that you might live long in the land that I give you. Your life will be longer if you honor your father and mother. And then he doubles down to show you how short it can be if you don't. Because in chapter 22, it says, yeah, anyone who hits his mom or dad, that guy gets put to death. We don't do that here. Like God is super serious about the treatment of the older people in his community. And what Paul is saying is it makes God stoked when we come together and we take care of the older people in our community, our moms, our dads, our grandma, and our, our grandpa. And this only happens, I think, that the younger take care of the older when two things happen. The first is that dads choose to be dads and moms choose to be moms. Did you know that kids love boundaries? That they absolutely do? So like I have these kids who will come into the kids wing and they're psycho and they destroy everything. Like they're throwing punches and I'm 28. I've heard some colorful language, but like sometimes like they string together some words. You're like, that makes sense. But you can't ever say that again. Like, wow. Okay. And what we do is the the whole team back there is so good at, we, we create boundaries and we just go, hey, we don't do that here. Let me give you another way to do that. Now, nope, we don't, we don't hit each other here. We're gonna talk that and we create boundaries. And you know what's crazy that I've seen? There's three kids in particular over the years that I've been over that age group that I've seen totally change where their kids bring them, they're out of control, mom's fighting them. They put them in the kid's wing and it's just like calm because there's boundaries. They know what they're allowed to do. They recognize the teacher. Oh, that guy calls me out. And they... They enjoy it and the other kids enjoy them and then they go back to mom and it's crazy because there's no boundaries. Kids want boundaries. It's so healthy for them. It's so good for them. They need it. It's so good for their safety. It causes them to thrive. Kids want boundaries and Jesus even says in Matthew 7, his people are those who let their yes be yes and their no be no. That if we say no, okay, that's the answer. No is no. We're consistent. We're, we have boundaries. That's the kind of people we have to be. So the first thing is, I think dads have to be dads and moms have to be moms. But the second thing is, dads sometimes aren't dads and moms sometimes aren't the way that moms are supposed to be. And so kids need to be people who forgive their parents and recognize that, yeah, my parents are sinful. That's why I turned out the way I am. I'm gonna keep choosing to love them anyway, even though even though it hurts, you know, even though there's disappointment, even though there's pain in our past, it's pleasing in the sight of God that I do this. And so this is what I'm called to do in this time is to take care of mom, is to take care of dad. Verse five, she who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. It's, so he's saying that there's the type of woman who she's, she's prayerful. The, the, the true widow, she's all alone. She's got no family. She has her hope set on God. Her next meal is just by her praying, God, provide for me. And she prays night and day continually. It's a really interesting order. Because the Bible doesn't normally say night and day. Like I think um, Psalm chapter one, for instance, where it talks about the man who meditates on God's law day and night is like a person, is like a tree planted by streams of water whose fruit never withers, who, or fruit is always in season and his leaf never withers or fades. It's usually day and night. But in this case, he says they're in prayer night and day. 
When I went hunting with um, my dad when I was in middle school, the first time we drove all the way out to Wyoming and we ended up in a relative of my dad's basement. It was me, it was my dad and my dad's best friend since high school, Chris. And I went to bed early, I was tired, it was a long day. And so I'm sleeping and I woke up in the middle of the night to two full-grown bears attacking each other. That's what it sounded like because I woke up to like just this, this fierce, ferocious sound. And it was just these huge men whose bodies were trying to gasp for breath throughout the night. Like, like, like that's, just, that's what it was. And I'm sitting there like, how, how do, you, do your, your wives sleep? Like, how is this really a thing? And that was the entire trip. And it, it, that's, that's how they breathe, apparently. But I know this, is when I was a kid, I had a squeaky fan in my room. And eventually, that squeaky fan, the noise from it became something I needed to go to sleep. And then when I'd go to a friend's house and I'd sleep or I would go camping, it was hard for me to go to sleep without the squeaky fan. I know that when people who have been married for a really long time to the same spouse, there's nothing worse than when there's no more snoring. And that's just quiet. And so I think the reason why they put it prayers night and day is because they're awake. And it's really easy in those times for loneliness and despair to creep in. And that's the time that the widow's supposed to draw near to Jesus. And remember that she or he is never really alone, that Jesus is always with them. He hasn't forgotten them. He hasn't forsaken them. He's got a plan for them. And more importantly, the person that they're missing so much is with Jesus, and together they're preparing a place for her or him. That's what I think the widow set her eyes on is I've got a hope, a living hope, a hope that doesn't leave at death, a hope that doesn't leave me stranded or abandoned or lonely. I've got a hope, a future plan. I've got my eyes set on Jesus. But if they're self-indulgent, if if they're the kind of person who is just seeking pleasure and seeking the next thing and just trying to, to fulfill their life, wasting time, just looking forward to death, the Bible's like, well, it'd be better that you were just dead. You're, you're living as though you were dead. You're dead while you're living. Isaiah paints this picture for us of God looking over the face of the earth saying, who will I send to do my work? And Isaiah goes, here I am, send me. That's the kind of people that we're called to be. We're not called to be the people of just living day by day for the weekend, for vacation. We're called to day by day be people going, here I am, God. What's your will for me? What do you have for me? I may not like my circumstances or my boss or my job or my kids or my wife right now, but I want your will for me, God. Help me to do this. Lord, what do you want me to do? That's who we're called to be. That's what we're supposed to be. Not living for the day, not being self-indulgent, but to seek Jesus, even when it's hard, even when it's dark, even when it's difficult. Verse eight, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If anyone doesn't provide for his relatives, Jesus is saying, you're worse than an unbeliever. Isn't that crazy? Part of being a Jesus follower 
is daily taking up your cross, denying yourself, and following him. And nothing can remind us how difficult it can be to be around our family members, let alone take care of them daily than Christmas and Thanksgiving, which we're so close to right now. That there's some relationships that are really difficult and really hard, and there's pain that's brought up, and there's issues that have to be worked through. And there's a story where Peter comes up to Jesus and he asks him, he says, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? Maybe he's talking about Andrew. Maybe he's talking about John, because there's this interesting rivalry rivalry between them and all the gospels. Maybe it's someone we don't know about, but he asked Jesus a really important question. How many times am I really supposed to forgive? Because at some point there's the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? This is what Jesus does. He tells him a story. He doesn't want to get him caught up in numbers because we love loopholes, don't we? If we can work our way out of a loophole, we will do it. Jesus paints him a picture and he says, there's a king and this king wanted to settle debts with all of his servants. And so he had all the servants come to him. And one servant, after the king rattles off all that he owes, finds that he owes him, let's just call it a billion dollars. The servant goes, that's impossible. I, I can't do that. The king goes, okay, well, you will be sold as a slave. So will your wife and so will your kids in order to pay off the debt. And the servant falls on his knees and says, can you, just, can you ever forgive me? I, I know that it's so much to ask. Can you, can you help me out here? Can you forgive me of this debt? And moved with compassion, the king says, okay, I will bear the burden of your debt. You can go free. So the servant leaves. He's stoked, right? He just got off a million dollars, a billion dollars. Like he's debt free. And he's running down the road and he sees this guy that he recognizes. And he remembers, I loaned that guy a dollar. And he runs up to that guy and starts choking him and says, you are gonna pay me back every cent. Where is my dollar? And he goes, I don't, I don't have your dollar. Give me more time, I don't have it. And he says, nope, and throws him in jail over the dollar that's owed him. When the king heard that, he wasn't stoked. And he called the servant to him and basically said, are you kidding me? After all the mercy that I've shown you, you can't be merciful likewise? After all that I've forgiven you, you really can't forgive? It's easy for us to keep track of all of the wrongs that someone has done to us. It's easy for us to think about someone and recall every time they let us down, every time they've hurt us, every sin they've committed against us, and they can be really painful and they can really hurt. But you have to know this. Jesus keeps track too. That for every wrong, every sin, every evil done to somebody, it was etched into Jesus on the cross. And he knows all about it. He knows just how bad sin hurts. He knows just how painful that can be. Jesus keeps track. And you don't have to worry about getting justice because the Bible tells us that that belongs to Jesus. That either Jesus has paid for it or Jesus will make sure that the debt gets paid. That's for Jesus to cover. That's for Jesus to figure out. For you and me as Jesus followers, it's our job to say, okay, Jesus, I'm gonna choose to follow you and show mercy the way that you show mercy. I'm gonna choose to forgive the way that you have forgiven me. And so now Peter sets a bar for widows. Verse nine. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. 
having, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. That's quite the bar, isn't it? That's a high bar. And then he goes further as to try to disqualify certain people. He says, but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. It's important to note that I did not write this. <laughs> so I would have younger women, younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So he cuts some people out. The younger women, he says, hey, you should remarry. And his reasoning is this, is don't be idle. When you're idle, when you don't have goals, when you don't have a purpose, it's easy for us to become idle. And the saying, comes, the saying that comes from this is, idle hands are the devil's workshop. It's in those idle times that we get ourselves in trouble. We say things that we shouldn't. We'd be busybodies. We're concerned about what everyone else is doing rather than what's going on in our own home. And so Paul says, go ahead and let them have their hands full. Give them some kids. They'll be busy. Saying they should remarry. They should, they should have a family. They'll be busy. And through doing that, they'll live the life that they should. If, if they, they will become the people that God has for them, that God wants them to be. What's interesting, though, is that Paul does not have anything in here about, well, what if a woman's not this? What if you have an older lady, she's over 60, and she has been the wife of many husbands, and she has tons of kids, but she's blown up every last relationship, and she's not renowned for her good, good works. She's actually renowned for being awful. Like, she's just terrible to talk to, and she's so frustrating and naggy, and everything you say is, ah! You know, why? And it's just, it's difficult, you know? Like, what do you do then? She comes to you and she says, I need, I need wood, I'm cold, I need food, I need all this stuff. You just go, no. <laughs> Is that what we're supposed to do? No way. Paul doesn't say, and if they do these, then you cut them out, you say, no way. Because that's not what the church is supposed to do. We're a generous group of people who say, okay, I'll give you a quart of wood. I'll, I'll walk with you. I'll talk with you. You've blown up every single relationship you've ever had. I'm going to esteem, esteem you as being greater than myself. I'm gonna care for you because no one else wants to. And hopefully through that, you'll get to know Jesus. You'll get to know why I wanna do this for you. That's who the church is supposed to be. Paul is a grace guy. He's all about grace. And we're supposed to be too. Let's read the last paragraph. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. 
and the laborer deserves his wages. Actually, we just got to stop right there. You know, I listen to a lot of people. I'm constantly listening to different pastors of different denominations and different public speakers because I want to get better at communicating. I, I want to know God's word better. And I'm so thankful for the grace of our church for having the patience to allow a young person like me to come up here and speak. I always want to be better. And so I'm listening to people constantly. And I got to be honest with you. We are so lucky for Matt. Like he is this guy worthy of double honor. I don't hear pastors like that ever. Like I've, I was telling him a few weeks ago, the first and second Peter series was insane. It was so good. This is the, Matt's that guy. Matt's the guy, I, he didn't ask me to do this. This is just, I know this is true. Like Matt is the guy that's worthy of double honor. He labors over knowing God's word and being able to teach it effectively to people of all ages that they can come together and praise Jesus for the work that he's done and then be motivated to work out that life in the community, in our workplaces and with our spouses. It's incredible. And you should let him know how awesome he is. He's worthy of that honor. I, it's my opinion. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So it's saying right here, if you have some guy who's involved in your church, he's teaching, he's preaching, and um, you hear something about him that he's done or said or been a part of, but you don't have the two or three witnesses, don't take that charge against him. And here's why. When I was in high school, there was a pastor that was very influential for me that I listened to a lot. And 30 witnesses came out against him. And his church blew up hard. And it should have. But what happened is the fallout from it was extreme. Because people who, who wrote really influential worship songs, they now write... Um, letters or, or things, blogs online about how Jesus isn't God. Because the impact of this guy, everything was false about him. Therefore, everything he ever taught must also be false. That wave went through his church and affected really awesome people. And that can happen. That can happen when a, a charge is brought against a pastor and this guy isn't who he was supposed to be. He let us down. He did all this stuff. Then you start to question, did anything he ever say, was it any of that actually true? That's why the Bible puts this weight on it. Don't, don't everyone aspire to be pastors because you're held to a higher standard. And so when you hear the gossip or you hear stuff, it's important not to charge unless you have two or three people say, yeah, that's what happened. And in the event that there is a charge brought up, Paul says, you're supposed to take that pastor up in front of the church and be like, dude blew it. This guy who we had all these aspirations for, who knew better, decided to do this anyway. And you know what that causes every other young pastor like Timothy in the church to think? I won't do that. Right? Any other person who's aspiring to be a teacher will know, oh, we don't do that here. In God's family, we take God's law seriously. We take God's law seriously. Okay, 
I'm going to remember that and put that into practice. That's the, the kind of people, the countercultural people we're supposed to be is to hold people accountable when they fail, especially if they're in leadership and in the position of teaching God's word to God's people. Verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others, keeping yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use only a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. The sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. Paul urges Timothy not to rush into making people pastors. Don't just lay hands on people quickly and say, yeah, this is our new guy, because he might blow it. And there might be the ripple effect that happens where people go, is any of this even true? I, was, I, I wanted to believe that guy, and, and he... He failed. He's a sinner, just like any of us are, but he was held to a higher standard. So Paul is encouraging Timothy, be slow with that because you're going to be responsible for them. Essentially, what Paul is saying here to Timothy is you reap what you sow and that if there is someone in the church who's supposed to be called to a pastor, you'll see their good works. Even the good works that are done is secretly, those can't be, remain hidden forever and that people come together and go, oh my gosh, I'm so blessed by this guy and blessed by this person. And so I wanted to end tonight by just reading a, a paragraph of something that Paul wrote elsewhere that I think applies so well. And it's Galatians chapter six, verses seven through 10. It says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's be a church that treats each other, each other like a family who doesn't grow weary in well-doing. Let's be men who wanna see the boys in our church be raised up to men. Let's be people who protect the young women of our church who would look at this place and this should be the most safe place in the whole world for young women to be. I mean, and the relationship that the young men and the old men are supposed to have, like we're gonna keep growing, especially with a pastor like Matt. And as we grow, young men will come in and there will be wolves among them. And if a young woman ever in our church feels like I'm uncomfortable, this guy's harassing me, all they need to do is know that they can go to any older man in this church and that man will act like a dad and will go, I can handle that. I can figure it out. This is not gonna be a problem for you anymore. Like that's the community that we're supposed to be. Encouraging one another to love and good work, protecting one another, caring for one another, esteeming each other as being greater than ourselves and to not grow weary in well-doing. And in doing so, you're gonna sow good seeds 
You're gonna watch your kids grow up and see you acting in the community as a contrast person. Contrast to everything else that the world is saying that you're supposed to be like and supposed to have, your kids are gonna see that and they're gonna grow up and they're gonna want that too because they're gonna see the life that Jesus pours into you. And they're gonna see that lacking in their friends' dads and their friends' moms. And their friends are going to want to have that relationship too. That's who we're supposed to be. It's supposed to be so other, this community that we have, because the world is drawn to it. The unbeliever wants something different than what the world is giving them. That's why we're here. So let's be something different, something totally other. So Jesus, I pray that you will empower us to walk out our faith in courage, that we would esteem others as being greater than ourselves, that we would, we would sow good seeds. And Jesus, help the older men of this church to raise up the boys in our church to be young men, that we be a community of men who look out for the oppressed, for the needy, for those who are, are hurt and downcast and lonely. I pray that our young men would be patient, that they would seek the wisdom of the older men, that they would listen with big ears and talk with small mouths. I pray that the older women of our church would be cared for and loved and honored and esteemed. And I pray that the young women of our church would be valued and protected and know that they are infinitely more valuable than they could ever imagine. And Jesus, may we live that out daily in our community and in our lives. And it's in your name we pray, amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming out.